0: Welcome back to Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed. I am one of your hosts, Kisa Hopi
1: And I'm your other host, Renee Rethel. Today's episode is called Listen to Jonah Joyner on Workplace and Self-Care.
0: Prior to starting her own equity, inclusion, and wellness advocacy firm, Jonah spent several years as a corporate communications leader, where she led strategic objectives such as healthcare and wellness communications, oversight of business resource group councils and the development of inclusive awareness activation centers for multi-brand franchise systems today Jonah spends her time engaging and educating leaders on intersectionality of equity and inclusion psychological safety and employee well-being though the COVID-19 and racial justice crises of 2020 thrust these issues to the forefront she argues the synergies between them have been present for generations and cannot be overstated. Jonah believes corporate wellness is a vital component of both personal and organizational effectiveness. She is the founder of Drink First Then Poor, a self-love activation community for high achieving women and was recently featured as a wellness expert in Parents Magazine. Jonah has conducted countless workshops on the topic of pandemic parenting, workplace wellness, and burnout. In her spare time, Jonah engages and coaches young widows and plays momager to her four-year-old tiny boss, Zoe. Welcome, Jonah. We are so happy to have you here today.
1: Good to be here. Well, let's just jump right into it then, Jonah. Um, You know, we want to start out by talking about um, your experience in diversity and inclusion initiatives. So with your years of experience in this area of the world, how pervasive would you say racial biases in the workplace? And then to piggyback off of that, do you find that companies really want to embrace diversity, inclusion, truly and honestly, or is it more of a box to check off for their organizations?
2: I, my response to that is bias is pervasive everywhere. Right? There is all sorts of unconscious biases that we all have related to the privilege that we have, related to our gender, related to our um, sexual orientation, um, our gender identity, our race, our ethnicity. The list goes on and on and on. So regarding the workplace, yes, right? It's not exempt from the experiences of racial bias in addition to many other
1: biases that take place. So when organizations want to work on this, do you think it's coming from an honest and genuine place or are they checking off the box because they have to for whatever reason, whether it be political or societal or what do you think about that? It could be
2: both. Uh, You know, we, we would like to think that Focusing on you know, workplace diversity and inclusion is, is a nice thing to do, right? So we should just do it because it's really about being a good human. But at the end of the day, when you're talking about organizations and companies, often what is most important is the bottom line, right? And if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. And what is measured, right? What is measured is what is focused on. So yeah, so when organizations, um, it could be a box just for them to check off or they could be embracing it. I think what we saw with everything that happened in 2020, right, with the, the pandemic of COVID-19, but also um, the racial injustice, injustices that, that became so prevalent and so um, apparent to so many people, I think because we were all stuck at home and really didn't have a whole lot to do. So people had more emotional and mental capacity to pay attention to what was happening. That was really a litmus test and also a wake-up call for not only our our country, but also for organizations as a whole, right? To say, okay, let's reevaluate how we have been approaching diversity and inclusion in the past. And are we really making an impact, right? Are we really driving the needle here? Is our bottom line affected in some sort of way or hasn't been affected in some sort of way and or has it been more so lip service, right? Do we have someone that we've assigned to be the head of diversity and inclusion, but we haven't given them a budget? Um, they, they do not have any real authority or power or um, real influence, right, within the organization and is the, highest, is, is the highest ranking person of color within our organization the head of diversity and inclusion? also, right? So that's another, that's another point. It's like, okay, if your highest ranking person of color is the head of diversity and inclusion, um, that says a lot about how you value Inclusion and what that really looks like at your organization.
1: Was it really, Oh, man, I would love to sit down and talk with you more about that. We just this past week got um, two emails from both of our son's schools to take a survey on diversity inclusion. And it's interesting to me. Are we just doing a survey mm. or is anything going to come from this? Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's, it's different at both of their schools. But um, just the practicality of diversity inclusion. Mm. How do we start a program? like this? And how do we make it meaningful? Yeah, I think that's where companies kind of slip a little bit. We can say we have a program, but are we doing yeah. anything? And the yeah.
0: conversation is for yeah. all, not just for the Black employee to be leading, correct?
1: Exactly. Exactly. No? And it's like, what's our
2: overall yeah. intention, right? Like, right. what are we really trying to achieve? So you have diversity, you have inclusion, and you have equity, right? And they're all different. And what we find is that a lot of companies kind of focus on the diversity piece, and they, they stop there right? Which diversity is really just like the foundational level, right? So diversity really just means difference, right? So we acknowledge and we recognize differences among our people. Okay, that's awesome. But that does absolutely nothing to create more fairness, more equitable practices. That does nothing to dismantle discrimination or bias or anything like that, right? It purely is just the acknowledgement of, hey, we're different, So the inclusion part is okay, so what are what are the programs, the practices um, that we can incorporate as an organization to help everyone feel like they're a part of this team, right? Regardless of what you look like, how you identify, etc. Right. It's like how can we help everyone to feel included? And then the equity piece, right? So it's not equality, it's it's equity. It's how can we give everyone an equal opportunity to achieve certain things. So if, for example, if an organization recognizes that there's a gap in women leaders, right, within their organization, if they identify that, you know, 75% of our senior leaders are, are male, then the opportunity to create more equity as far as more women in leadership means that there will need to be investments and strategies and goals and metrics around uh, developing more women leaders. So so yes, that means that there is more support and effort given to uh, you know, high potential women employees in order to achieve the equity as far as um you know maybe having more of a 50 50 dynamic at the senior leadership level between men and women so it's like it's a kind of a stair-step approach right like too often i think organizations stop at just diversity we're 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 just not going to get anywhere with that limited mindset and approach also
1: We think it's helpful to remember that the Civil Rights Act happened in 1964. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act prohibits employment discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was charged with enforcing Title VII. The EEOC said this about race discrimination race discrimination involves treating someone, an applicant or employee, unfavorably because he or she is of a certain race or because of personal characteristics associated with race, such as hair texture, skin color, or certain facial features. The EEOC also says this, An employment policy or practice that applies to everyone, regardless of race or color, can be illegal if it has a negative impact on the employment of people of a particular race or color and is not job-related and necessary to the operation of the business. In other words, we've come so far, but still have so far to go.
0: I don't know how familiar you are, but you probably are with Austin Cheney Brown's book, I'm Still Here. But in it, she discusses uh, a meeting she was in regarding diversity and inclusion, uh, but the undertone was that of what is wrong with assimilation? So the assumption being that assimilation meant unity. The organization wanted racial diversity, but not diversity of thought or culture. Is this a common assumption amongst organizational leadership that you've encountered?
2: That's an interesting question because I, I hear that a lot, right? Um, around assimilation. Well. well but what, what assimilation does, it, it completely devalues, um, a person's uniqueness. It devalues someone who's not of the dominant culture or the dominant in group, right? It devalues who, who they are and what they bring. And although assimilation sounds easy or easier for the organization, it really is counter (laughs) to inclusion. Um, so the 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 work of of inclusion and equity it's it's not easy work and that's why not everyone does it well right um because it does take s- strategy and dollars budget dollars and it does take real focus energy and effort so uh, what happens with assimilation is you also sort of create this environment where psychological safety is reduced in the workplace as well, right? So people don't feel comfortable showing up as their authentic self. They don't feel comfortable, as they say, bringing their whole self to work. And we can argue whether or not people should actually bring their whole self to work. But the the point being that if if I'm on a work group, if I'm in a work group where, for instance, it's all white women, right? And, And myself. And if part of the assimilation is um, you know, we only engage in or participate in group activities and things that the majority is interested in. Okay. But it completely isolates me, right? It completely isolates the person who's not in the majority. And that doesn't really promote a cohesive work group, right? You, then you have, you, it, it's difficult to build trust. It's difficult to build camaraderie. It also stifles innovation as well. Right. Because if I feel as though my ideas won't be not only valued, but really even respected um, or heard, then I'm less likely to um, to bring forth those ideas. So you can kind of get into a, a, a dangerous area of groupthink as well. Right. Because, again, it's like whatever the whatever the dominant, whatever the in group prefers then or or you know, how we engage, then that is the only truth. And it is just so stifling to organizations and work groups and teams.
0: Yeah, that trust is is huge, right? You don't see anyone that looks like you, you can't identify and you don't feel safe.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, and, and the that idea of assimilation is it's easy, right? It's the easy response or the easy um, way to go, but at the end of the day, you know, when we look at the data of diverse teams and work groups and the performance truly outweigh, the diverse teams truly outperform non-diverse teams. Diverse leadership organizations outperform those that are not diverse. There's, there's so much research and so much data that says this. But, you know, you, you do have to work to learn how to, again, build trust. Among, you know, the different people, the different groups, the different cultures, the different backgrounds to, to build that camaraderie. It takes a lot of listening. It takes people getting to know each other, um, to feel comfortable, to share. Right. That this is a safe space. This is a psychologically safe place to work. Um, it takes trauma informed leadership. It, it's not
1: easy, but it's it's worth it at the end of the day. That's so true. I, I think about even just Kisa in this space, you you and I are working relationship, right? Like it's, it's so much richer because we come from different backgrounds yes. and we have um, different paths and we de- bring different things to the table. It just makes sense to me that that would be the case, right. that yeah. performance would be increased because we're more diverse, not yeah. the other way around. So And you're able to learn um,
2: from each other, right? You're able to learn from yeah, each other's
1: experiences and perspectives.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yep. yeah well when we think about it from the christian perspective like when we when we one day are all in heaven together it's going to be every tongue every tribe right. we will all be together and the richness and the beauty of that that's one of the things in this conversation that just blows my mind is that some people have mm. so much fear of people who are different than them right your life is so much richer if you would embrace it yeah. Yeah. it's like where's the curiosity right like why can't we yeah. be curious instead of afraid Mm.
0: yeah I love that terminology language
1: that's good Mm -hmm.
0: merriam Webster defines assimilation as this to absorb into the cultural tradition of a population or group it seems to us that businesses and organizations would benefit from not creating a culture of assimilation businesses and organizations would greatly benefit from celebrating everyone's differences and allowing all of the life experience that defines someone's culture to make the company better True unity comes from celebrating and welcoming differences.
1: Okay, so Jonah, the Center for American Progress states this statistic. The U.S. economy was built on the exploitation and occupational segregation of people of color. As a result, stark and persistent racial disparities exist in jobs, wages, benefits, and almost every other measure of economic well-being. In your opinion, do you think those of us who call ourselves Christians are doing a disservice to our brothers and sisters of color, if we don't call attention to disparities or disproportionate treatment of people of color in most organizations? Or do you think we should just acknowledge there's sin in the world and wait for things to be perfect when Jesus comes back?
2: Mm. Okay. So as a Christian myself, right? Um, and as a and and also as a black woman, I I have a little bit of beef with this, right? A little bit of beef because I think too often um in the Christian community we lean toward the latter. We lean toward the it's just a sin-filled world, and when we all get to heaven, right? That's when all of the uh all of the tongues, all of the cultures and everything. Yes, yes. But also we are here on this earth now, right? And there are clear, clear disparities and evidence of discrimination and bias and racism and xenophobia and sexism and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? The list goes on and on and on. And to simply turn a blind eye to that, I don't believe is Christian, Yes Jesus he prayed for everyone he loved everyone but Jesus also flipped tables in 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 those days he was probably really close to like you know using some choice words with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because they were not exemplifying right the the kingdom right the kingdom of heaven with the 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 false teaching and the doctrine and all of the all of the things that sort of can happen right within the faith because the faith is because people because of people right and and we people are not perfect and right and we're broken and and so forth i i do take issue with this notion that we kind of turn up we can turn a blind eye i think as christians to um to what's happening in our own backyard sometimes we see a lot of all, really awesome mission work and really great things that are taking place in other countries and overseas and that is Wonderful. And we should continue to do that. But we should also continue to just like watch the news and like pay attention to what's happening in our in our neighboring neighborhoods, in our backyards, in our own city, right? I I think there's still a lot of work to be done in this space. You know, the the what what did I say? The church hour is probably the most segregated hour of the day, right? And there's a lot to be said about that, right? There's there's a lot to be said about that. But I would love to see more being done on many sides, right? Whether you grew up in a predominantly white church or black church or, or whatever, because again, this is a very segregated hour of the day. I would love to see more engagement, right? More opportunities like this, you know, the platform that you two have developed and created to to listen to learn to engage and to try to help one another right let's not turn a blind eye to to things that are happening within our city I, for some reason I, I feel like there's this real hesitation when it comes to like racism there's like this <laughs> there's so much hesitation in the christian community to like even acknowledge it it it, it baffles me it really baffles me and it's it's like you have <laughs> It's kind of like politics, right? In a sense that there's like one perspective that this side has, and then there's one perspective that that's that that side has. When really the truth is like somewhere in the middle, right? Yeah, I just I, I would I would like I would like to see uh, some things happen differently when it comes to Christians coming together to acknowledge injustices, not only when it comes to whether or not you're pro-life, but are you pro-life from conception
1: to grave, right? I, Jonah, I, th- I think you're getting really close to the answer as to why Christians, white Christians are hesitant to talk about race, to deal with mm-hmm. it. And I, Brian Stevenson from Equal Justice Initiative just had an article, mm-hmm. I think it may be the Washington Post, I'm not sure, and I'll go back and find it and I'll put it in our show notes. But the article was about taking politics out of race race shouldn't be political this shouldn't be yeah. a partisan issue uh-huh. to get this junk out of our country it mm-hmm. just shouldn't be but yeah I, I, we forget right we forget
2: our country you can argue was literally founded on the the social classes that were created right so you have so you have that you also have the racism and the fact that we forced a whole race of people, right, to work for, for nothing, right? Not only did we do that, but we also stripped them of their humanity for generations. So here we are, you know, a couple hundred years later, we, we don't like to talk about that, right? We don't like to acknowledge the truth and the facts on the, this country's very um, tenuous relationship with race. You know, I think maybe one day when we're able to like have that conversation, that honest conversation, um, it it'll probably be like a big group therapy session to acknowledge your trauma, you know what I'm saying? And to be able to to talk
1: about it from both sides. NBC News reported on a PRRI survey from 2018 recently. This survey found that white Christians, evangelical Protestants, mainline Protestants, and Catholics are nearly twice as likely as religiously unaffiliated whites to say the killings of black men by police are isolated incidents rather than part of a pattern of how police treat African Americans. And white Christians are about 30 percentage points more likely to say monuments to Confederate soldiers are symbols of Southern pride rather than symbols of racism. White Christians are also about 20 percentage points more likely to disagree with this statement. Generations of slavery and discrimination have created conditions that make it difficult for Blacks to work their way out of the lower class. And you know what? These trends have generally continued even in the wake of the recent protests for racial justice this past year. Jonah, Kisa, I have two things for you all. Mm-hmm. That's OK. This is off off our outline, Kisa. <laughs> you gonna allow me to do this. Jump off. Jump off. Um, OK, first thing. Jonah, you were talking about acknowledgement and I, you know, if you've done any work in trauma and understanding Mm -hmm. trauma, you know, that acknowledgement is huge in the healing process Mm -hmm. and not just me, myself acknowledging my personal trauma. It's me, myself acknowledging someone else's trauma that is close to me. Even if it happened 25, 50 years ago, Mm -hmm. in order to understand and love that person well, I need to acknowledge that trauma as well. So I think that's key in these conversations of reconciliation. We've got to acknowledge the trauma of our country. We have to, Mm -hmm. no matter what race we are, and we've got to talk about it. That's the first thing. The second thing that I wanted to ask you all as a white Christian woman, am I loving you all well if I don't acknowledge that this is real in your opinions? Acknowledge what is real if you don't racism is, she is she real. Not in analogy, racism
0: is real. Is she loving us well? Yeah. No. Not in my opinion, no.
1: Or if I'm um Jesus washing it like we talked about it before, is that loving you well? No.
0: No. Saying that everything is even at the foot of the cross or level at the foot of the cross and so that's the cover to say that everything is going to be all good is not enough. Like Jonah said, I mean there's there's things happening right here in your backyard. You can choose to turn a blind eye to it or you can do something. And we have a lot choosing to do nothing because they want to put scripture over it or say that everything's going to be okay when Jesus comes back. In my opinion, I don't know. You agree?
2: I do agree. So what what that says to 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 me as a as a black woman is that that statement doesn't acknowledge me. It doesn't acknowledge my experience, how I how I show up in this world, how I'm able to show up in this world. I can't not talk about race, cannot, because I'm always seen as a Black woman. And there are certain things that just come with that, right? Certain perceptions, certain instant biases, et cetera, that people have just because of the way that I look, right? So for example, when we're teaching our children certain things as, as, as you know, people of color, as Black people, We generally teach our children pretty early on about race and racism because we have to, right? We don't have the option to not (laughs) because the world sees them as othered, as minoritized, right? The world sees them that way. So we have to have these conversations. We have to have the talk with our kids early on, whether that is how you should engage with the police or talking about your hair. Right and how you should love and appreciate your hair and the list. The list kind of goes on. If a friend of mine, right, you, right, Renee. So if if you say you love me and you acknowledge that, right, you acknowledge that yes, you love me. Yes, we may have a ton of things in common, but we're also different. We we show up in the world differently. You know, if you love me, you not only acknowledge that, but you also try to figure out how to help support me in that as well. The, the silence that we heard a lot about last summer around George Floyd and Breonna and all of that, right? The, the white silence that was experienced was, was more harmful and helpful. The, the marginalized or the minoritized person can't change the system alone. Allies are needed, are required, right? So even, even with the women's suffrage movement, right? Without men changing those laws, women would not have had the right to vote. The the marginalized, the minoritized people need need majority members, right? We need we need you guys as allies to support and to identify injustices and biases and racism and xenophobia and, and et cetera, right? All the things. Like just like women, we need men to to recognize and be an ally when it comes to sexism. It's yeah, we wanna take a like a day off. We wanna like vacate from the hard the hard stuff because it's because it is hard
1: well I think there's so much of like well I I love you Kisa I love you Jonah I love you as an individual person Mm -hmm. but there's a blindness to the fact that no you know what y'all are black women Mm -hmm. and there's an experience that goes along with that and I, I just I think that the white Listeners and our white friends just need to step up and realize this because this—we're talking about the workplace today. This translates from the workplace to the church, to the school, right. to the grocery store.
0: And a lot of them don't want to talk, Renee. They don't want to talk about it. They just want to be your friend and exclude that that part of it. I have friends now who won't won't talk about it. They won't listen to this podcast, but they still want to be friends and go to lunch and stuff like that. So you know, let's just keep it easy.
2: Yeah. See, and and they have they have the option to opt out.
0: They have the option I've said that so many times, Renee, haven't yeah. I? It's easy to say I don't want to talk about race anymore because you have the privilege of not having yeah. to. But you don't. So, so yeah, I've said that many, many times, and we do not. Yeah. So talking about bias and trauma, kind of going into um going into that a little bit, have you noticed uh the negative effects that bias have had on uh black people in the workplace, people or people of color in the workplace? Have you noticed kind of how that has affected them?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's kind of all what we're talking about, right? Like, they're, so I'll, I'll back up to say, I don't think it's often egregious, right? Like, I don't think it's often intentional to, to have a discriminatory workforce or to, um, you know, to have discriminatory practices. They become, it, it becomes the norm and kind of institutionalized, right? So, so for example, If you're an organization um, and you're trying to recruit new talent, right? And you say you want want to recruit a more diverse workforce, but you recruit only at certain schools, in certain cities, in certain neighborhoods, with certain, you know, candidates with certain backgrounds who have, (laughs) so it's like, hmm, where's the diversity of thought in that, right? Just to even approach how how you identify and how you how you identify who's going to be a great talent for your organization, right? Because oftentimes, whoever decides that is whoever the majority member is. And it's based on, I want people who look like me on my team. I want people who think like me on my team, who work like me on my team, who has similar background and experiences. And because we tend to feel more comfortable around people that we can relate to, right? So that's translates into the workplace as well. So I don't think the intention is often, well, let's you know, exclude people of color and let's exclude women and da, da, da. But it's just sort of the natural tra- transition of what happens because of the sort of very narrow view um, and and ideology that we have about recruiting talent, right? In that example. So it, it really is, You know, pervasive. Kind of what we were talking about earlier. It really is pervasive, and it takes just like I said before a strategy and intentionality, and oftentimes, you know, hiring a third party um, to come in and to help help you identify the blind spots and the gaps. So, what when we're we're talking about recruiting, uh, oftentimes on job descriptions, there are words right that um, that we've learned. Actually, kind of turn women off, and are more uh, engaging for men. Um, oftentimes, there are words that are gender specific that are used within job descriptions. There's there's so much science and knowledge that's available um, to organizations now to help neutralize and kind of create more of an equal playing field uh, for people, and to really identify and find great. Uh, diverse talent who will bring innovative thoughts, uh, perspectives, and thinking to their organization.
0: In 2019, the Being Black in Corporate America report found that 65% of Black professionals say that Black employees must work harder than their colleagues in careers, while only 16% of white professionals believe the same. It's important to remember that racism in the workplace does exist. Glassdoor in 2019 surveyed around 1,000 people currently in the workforce for its diversity and inclusion study. 42% of those American workers surveyed said that they have witnessed or experienced racism in the workplace. On the flip, the 2020 Together Forward at Work survey found that 93% of the white workforce does not believe racial and ethnic discrimination exists in the workplace. For our listeners around the globe, we found research that these stats hold true in Canada and Britain and even other European countries.
1: At the end of every episode of Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed, we tell a two-minute story about a Black hero from America's past or America's present.
0: Today we're telling you the story of Ursula Burns, who Fortune Magazine named the ninth most powerful woman in business. Ursula is currently a non-executive director of Diageo? A multinational beverage company she also sits on the uber board of directors but her story doesn't start there
1: ursula's story starts in the bearage houses in the lower east side of new york city make no mistake about it Beridge houses was in a tough neighborhood in the 1970s a lot of people would even use the term housing projects to describe where ursula grew up
0: she was born in 1958 her father left early on, and her mother was a single mother, taking many different jobs to provide for her children. From laundry service to in-home child care, Olga Burns did what she could to provide for her children. She even offered cleaning services to a local doctor in order to secure quality health care for her children.
1: Regardless of their financial means, Ursula said her mother always had high expectations and ambitions for her children. Ursula says her mother would always say, This is where you're going to grow up, but this is not what defines you.
0: Ursula definitely did not make growing up in the middle of gang violence in the subsidized apartment building define her. She had a successful high school career at Cathedral High School, earning scholarships to Polytechnic Institute at New York University, where she earned a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. She would later get her master's degree from Columbia University.
1: In 1980, as a 22-year-old Black woman, Ursula earned a coveted internship spot at Xerox. She climbed her way to the top as a Black female engineer in a white, male-dominated environment at Xerox over the next 40 years. In 2009, Xerox named Ursula CEO. She was the first African-American woman to lead a Fortune 500 company.
0: When she took the helm at Xerox, let's just say Xerox was losing its footing and its place in the tech world. The New York Times even said the word Xerox was being used in the past tense for a reason.
1: But, Ursula said in a PBS documentary, she learned something important from her mother. I learned from my mother that if you have a chance to speak, you should speak. If you have an opinion, you should make it known. So that's what Ursula did in her tenure as CEO of Xerox.
0: She diversified Xerox. She brought in fresh ideas. In 2009, Burns led the company to acquiring ACS, an IT outsourcing services company for $6.4 billion. Before she stepped down as CEO in 2016, she led the company to a jaw dropping $18 billion in revenue in 2015.
1: Ursula is also a founding member of Change the Equation, a CEO led nonprofit program to boost STEM education launched by President Obama in 2010.
0: Addressing the 2009 class of Rochester Institute of Technology during their commencement ceremony, Ursula Burns reminisced about her own graduation day. I can assure you that no one at my commencement was pointing at me and predicting that I would be the CEO of anything. Women presidents or CEOs of large global companies were non-existent at that time. Black women presidents of large global companies were unimaginable. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Two Mamas and a Mustard Seed. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue the conversation with Jonah Joyner. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Envision Radio. Until then, remember to be humble, be kind, be courageous, and be good listeners.
1: Two Mamas in a Mustard Seed is written and produced by Kisa Holke and myself. Music is licensed through musicbed.com. Learn more about us, hear more episodes, and send us your questions and comments at twomamasandamustardseed.com.